Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. And welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. I'm Allison Dagnus. I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. Today on Utterly Moderate, you will hear a discussion that Allie and I held at Shippensburg University on March 31st, 2021. The event featured Tom Nichols and Lee McIntyre and was titled, Do Facts Matter Anymore? Our conversation focused on the factors responsible for the demise of our shared reality in America and the dangers that this poses. Both Nichols and McIntyre have written very important books on this topic. Tom Nichols is a U.S. Naval War College professor and an instructor at the U.S. Air Force School of Strategic Force Studies and the Harvard Extension School. He is a prolific scholar whose books include The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters, and the forthcoming Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University and an instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School. He is also a prolific scholar whose work includes the books Post-Truth, The Scientific Attitude, and the forthcoming How to Talk to a Science Denier. The following are highlights from our discussion. Lee and Tom, welcome to Shippensburg, virtually. Um, We're so happy to have you here, and thank you for your time and your expertise. So, I would like each of you to begin by giving us just a very brief overview of your most recent books with an extra question added on for good measure. So Lee, Post Truth was released in 2017. And Tom, The Death of Expertise was first published in 2017 with a reprint in uh, 2019. So I'm wondering, since the last several years have been remarkably eventful, have things shifted so much that your arguments have changed also? I have more examples. Uh, I mean, what happened, uh, I, I define post-truth in the, really the first part of the book as the political subordination of reality. And I started writing that book just after the uh, Oxford Dictionaries named uh, uh, post-truth as the, the 2016 word of the year. And so I started writing that book in early 2017. And so some of the examples that I discussed in the book were uh, how many people were or were not at Trump's uh, inauguration, whether it rained on the inauguration. I think I talked about the the uh, path of the hurricane, you know, a few things like that. And then the book actually came out in uh, early 2018. Um, and then just things kept happening. It, it just kept on being more and more examples. And I have to say, when I saw the uh, Capitol riot on January 6th, I think that was the ultimate example of the political subordination of reality, because it was not just a one-off. It was something that had been cultivated over many months, if not years, and it had enormous consequences and import for our democracy. And here it was, um, somebody 
didn't like what reality was, and so they pretended it was otherwise, mobilized a, a crew of people to believe it, and you know, assaulted Congress. So th- I think that's kind of the, the ultimate example. So I don't really feel like uh, things changed other than to confirm the point that I was making early on. Now, if you ask me, did post-truth as a phenomenon just go away when Trump left office? No. And that's because I don't think that he was the cause of it either. Um, he was the symptom of it, uh, not the cause. And it's still around, uh, unfortunately. I um, first, first thing I have to say is I don't speak for the Navy or the government or the Air Force or anybody else. I'm required to remind you of that. Um, but also to give a shout out to Lee, I did, did not realize Lee was at my alma mater. I'm a proud son of Boston University. Uh, so. Um, the one change is that I that I've thought about since I since I wrote the book, and I didn't. I agree with Lee completely that Trump was not the motivator of this. Trump rode this wave. He surfed it. He didn't create it. Um, but the the change for me is that I was too optimistic. Uh, I in the book said that toward the end, I didn't have a lot of solutions for this, but I said, you know, usually a disaster is what snaps people out of this. Um, you know, when suddenly you're at war, um, meritocracy and competence and factual ability, you know, if there's a conflict with, I mean, think about what, what we did after Sputnik, where suddenly we said, hey, maybe we should get a whole bunch of people to speak Russian. Uh, maybe we need more engineers. Maybe we need more, you know, Soviet experts. Um, that, that didn't happen. Um, and I, the three things I specifically predicted when I was out speaking about this, I said, well, if there's a war or a recession or a pandemic. And and I said, well, pandemic, you know, people, you can't argue with a pandemic. It just is. And you do what you can to get by it. And we all kind of pull together. And I did not perhaps understand the depth to which the post-truth problem as a political problem had taken root. I thought of it primarily as a social problem. And I did not fully account for the fact that there would be a national leader and an entire political party that would actually continue to drive insane narratives about science. I didn't realize the degree to which that kind of political opposition to scientific reasoning, not fact, but just scientific reasoning, methods, evidence, if-then hypotheses, um, syllogisms, logic would simply go out the window um, so that people could feel better about their politics. And I really underestimated the, the degree to which that was possible. And so I am more pessimistic about the problem now than I was when I wrote the book. Tom, literally just a couple of days ago, I was cleaning my basement and while I was doing it, I was listening to one of your talks about the death of expertise. And you mentioned the pandemic as an example of something that could snap us back to reality. And it stopped me in my tracks. I stopped what I was doing. Yeah, well, if there's a pandemic, you know, that'll solve it. And people will just get vaccinated and wear masks and they'll have to listen to, you know, and I was like, Pfft. and in fact, um, you know, this is a, um, for the folks in the audience, this is a peek behind the scholarly curtain. 
but in one, it was one of the, this is one of the few times where I drafted up an article. I was, I was invited to write an article for a major journal. I drafted it up. A couple of months went by the editor and I looked at it and we both agreed that it just had to, I had to pull it that I, we couldn't go forward with it because I said, well, this, this was like in March, it was like a year ago. And I said, well, I predicted this thing about a pandemic and it looks like people are already, you know, we're going to Anthony Fauci and National Institutes of Health and the CDC. And this is going to, within a month of writing that and kind of handing in that first draft, the editor and I had a, had a phone conversation and he said, you know, and I said, no, pull it. It's just wrong. I'm, I'm just wrong. Um, and he said, I'm glad you understand. And I said, you know, we, and that's unusual. It's unusual to have your own research, uh, like a piece that you've written in real time where you just have to step back and say, I can't, I can't make the case for what I'm about to say. here." When I talk to people about the problem of post-truth, one of the things they often say to me is, well, isn't this just something that we're naturally hardwired to have a problem with? Don't our brains want to keep out threatening information that makes us feel bad or that threatens our core beliefs or threatens our identities, etc.? And my response is, of course, yes, we, we do have those tendencies. They are hardwired, but our media ecosystem, our information ecosystems, they really determine how much those biases and those human tendencies are unleashed. So could we talk a little bit about the first about the hardwired tendencies? Cognitive bias has been with us through the, you know, couple of hundred thousand years, I'm sure, of the evolution of our of our species. I mean, the Daniel Kahneman's brilliant book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, you know, talks about all of these wired in mistakes that we make. And it's actually an interesting academic question why we have them. I mean, what's the survival value for making a mistake in uh, in reasoning? But for whatever reason, they're there. And they're there uh, no matter what our political uh, convictions are. Liberals and conservatives both have them. And so, you know, they're, as you say, uh, Lawrence, they're, they're wired in. Um, people have been, and, and this is a, some pushback that I get on the concept of post-truth. Sometimes people will say, well, hasn't this always existed? You know, politicians have always lied. People have always lied. Yes, there's, there's always been a certain amount of, uh, of, of lying. And, you know, it's, it's not that this was... Uh, born in in 2016, as I as I think I indicated before, but what happened is it just it got worse because this predilection that people have the, to believe fake things when they hear them more than once, or when they hear them you know from from multiple sources, um, you know all of these uh, wired in biases that we have are made much worse when they're amplified. And that's what social media has done. It used to be that, you know, these fringe conspiracy theories are, you know, were, were out there and somebody had to mimeograph them and hand them out on the on the sidewalk. Or if they could, you know, get it in a, a, a certain newspaper that sold at the grocery store, you know, maybe the folks standing in line would, you know, would buy it. But now it's on the internet. And so what happens is people can, uh, get traction for any, just about anything that they think of. And it's really been the perfect storm. So, the, you know, these things, lying, fake news, they, they've existed before throughout human history. And unfortunately, the, the other thing that's existed throughout human history that, that was, was shocking to, to see it develop was the extent to which authoritarian rulers uh, 
all seem to converge on the idea of controlling the information flow. You want to control the information flow, uh, get rid of the truth tellers. That's the first thing that you do before you grab uh, uh, power. And so, I mean, that's definitely been around. Hannah Arendt, you know, other people have talked about that. And Jason Stanley's work and Tom's, uh, 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 Snyder's work, uh, you know, they've, they've talked about this. Um, it, post-truth is, uh, is pre-fascism, so, uh, you know, Snyder said in, in On Tyranny. And so, you know, that, that has been around. But all of this came together. And it was just, it was shocking to see it, uh, to see it develop. Um, you know, in some way, we're hardwired uh, for two reasons. First of all, we know that physiologically, it feels bad to be wrong. We literally have a physical reaction to being wrong um, because it feels good to be right because that's affirmation and, you know, we self-confidence. And so there is an evolutionary basis. We're also hardwired to cooperate. Um, so when enough people believe something, you want to believe it too, because then you're, you know, I mean, being the truth teller is being the, the uncomfortable skunk at the garden party. Um, but this predates social media. And the, I, I in, in Death of Expertise, I, I date this from maybe the late 60s or early 70s. What happened was not that people started to doubt experts. That, that's true. And that's always been the case. I mean, I tell, I tell stories in the book about no one ever likes professors. Professors have always had bad reputations, you know. Um, I, I, I pointed out in the book that when I was a young, brand new assistant professor, I used to go down and hang out my, God rest his soul. My brother had a bar down in our very working class neighborhood in Massachusetts. And I'd go hang out with my brother. I mean, having a brother who owns a bar is a great thing, you know? And so I'd go hang out with my brother and I would leave. And, um, this guy turns to my brother and he says, so your brother's a professor. And my brother said, yeah. And he said, huh, seems like he's a good guy anyway. <laughs> Like that goes with the, the territory where, you know, nobody likes exclusion and knowledge by its nature, expertise and, and knowing stuff is exclusionary by its nature. What's different. And, and this is when we were all kind of talking in the pregame show here, when we were having a quick discussion was what's different is this tidal wave of narcissism that starts to overtake us in the late sixties and early seventies where it's not just people saying, I doubt experts. It's they're saying, I am smarter than experts. I know this subject. What, what pushed me to write The Death of Expertise was not um, Trump or some political phenomenon. It's when I'm a, I'm a Russia expert by training. I'm a Soviet guy. Speak Russian, been there dozens of times, studied in Leningrad, the whole nine yards, right? And a young guy says to because he didn't like something I was saying about Edward Snowden and Russia. And he said, Tom, I don't think you understand Russia. Let me explain this to you. Let me explain Russia to you. And I, I finally just stopped and said, no, no, something is dysfunctional. I get paid for this. I'm, I'm an expert on this. Um, and so that to me is the thing that is qualitatively new. And when I started doing interviews for the death of expertise, so doctors, for example, would say, you know, I understand when people walk in and say, well, I don't, you're a quack. And I don't trust your diagnosis and I'm going to get another opinion. And I'm not sure. Now they walk in and he, he said, what's this one doctor, a general practitioner said, what's really different now is they walk in and say, here's what's wrong with me. And here's what you're going to do. And people do this. I, I said, well, maybe that was one, a one-off, a surgeon, a pediatric surgeon in the Midwest. And I talk about this in the updated version. Here's the procedure we are engaging you for on our child. Like it's like interior decorating. 
And he said, this is a very dangerous procedure. And the parents said, no, 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 we're not here to argue with you. We've done our research. We know what we want. Um, that is the thing that I think if you're out there thinking, well, this has just always been the case. And these are just pointy heads who don't like that. People don't listen to them about everything. That that's normal. It's the I know more about this subject than doctors or diplomats or arms control experts or neurosurgeons or whatever it is. I mean, it is really a remarkably I mean, is it and you saw it in spades when Donald Trump became president. He goes to CDC and he says, I know more than the doctors. They're amazed at how much I know. Everyone tells me I should have been a doctor. And millions of Americans said, I totally get that guy. I totally understand this. So that that to me is the thing I would argue that I think people should look at more closely is the almost I had a high school teacher, my my high school English teacher used to call it aggressive stupidity. That it's not just ignorance or a kind of failing. It's like this get this almost predatory ignorance that says, you know, to and to in the overlap with Lee's is I you know I know I'm going, I'm not just going to ignore the facts. I'm going to do violence to them because I know better. And that, that's the thing I think that's changed. The writer Molly Ivins used to call people aggressively stupid at times. And I thought that for, because she was very selective with it and it really worked um, because it does, it takes that extra sort of step, right? Anyone can be dumb, but to really go out there and, and force your stupidity on others is, uh, that's a special thing. And I, um, I didn't like that expression. I mean, I, it, you know, people have called me up short on this and they're right. I mean, because in the book I say, you know, stupid's an ugly word. And we use that word more than we should. And now I find I just use it all the time. I mean, I, I, I have not taken my own advice because there is this almost kind of feral stupidity that is not just, it, it's not, it's not something that just says, look, I believe what I believe and leave me alone. It's, it's it's um, evangelical in the in the small e version. It's I believe this, and you must believe it too. There's there's an aspect, Tom, that that I think's uh, important uh, to to recognize. So you, you talk about narcissism, and people tend to think, well, you know, that's just an individual thing, but it's it's heightened in the group, right? Because if you through the amplification of disinformation on social media and elsewhere, if you can find other people who agree with you then that makes it even more aggressive. That makes the person even more likely to say, not just I know better than the experts, but we know better than the experts because they can find a bunch of other people who aren't experts either who agree with them. Yeah, this, is, this is where social media has become terrifying. And there's a guy named, um, he's a writer, but he's also a comedian named Yevgeny Simpkin. And, and Simpkins, Simpkin says, every town has an end of the world. The end is near God. Right. And in, in previous times, the end of the world guy had a sandwich board and everybody went, well, that's just Billy. He, he does that. But when 10,000 of them reach out and form a union, then they're like, well, 10,000 of us can't be wrong. Tom, I actually quote Simkin a lot. He had a piece in the bulwark and he said, let's take a short walk down memory lane. It's 1995. A man stands on a busy street corner yelling vaguely incoherent things at the passerby. He's holding a placard that says, The end is nigh, repent. You come upon this guy while out getting the paper. How do you feel about him? You might feel some flavor of annoyance. Most people would also feel compassion for him, as he's clearly suffering from something. 
but no reasonable person would think of convincing this man that his point of view is incorrect. This isn't an opportunity for engaging debate. Now fast forward to 2020. In terms of who this guy is and who you are, absolutely nothing has changed. And yet here you are, arguing with him on Twitter or Facebook, and you yourself are being brought to the brink of insanity. End quote. He goes on to quote an employee who left Facebook who said, It is literally at a point now where I think we have created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. And then Simpkin goes on to say, I'm here to make the case that all modern social, political, and sociological ills can be traced to social media. It is single-handedly responsible for tearing apart our social fabric. It is not part of the problem. It is the problem. An insidious malware slowly corrupting our society in ways that are extremely difficult to quantify, but the effects of which are evident all around us. Anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, QAnon, cancel culture, Alex Jones, flat earthers, racists, anti-racists, anti-anti-racists, and of course the Twitter stylings of our dear leader. End quote. So it's important to note that while we may have these hardwired tendencies to keep out information which threatens our core beliefs and our core identities, and to look for information that makes us feel good, the information ecosystem plays a crucial role in unleashing these tendencies. These changes to this ecosystem include extreme partisanship, the decline of traditional media, the explosion of low-quality and partisan media, the rise of talk radio and punditry, cable news and the internet, social media, the proliferation of ideological silos and echo chambers. All of these things have helped to undermine notions of truth, facts, a shared reality, and the value of expertise, all of which are deeply destabilizing to our democracy. Um, I think this is a wonderful place to bring in my favorite topic, which is about the media, particularly uh, the political media and the polarized media that we have now and how the just the bifurcation of outlets and um, looking across different ecosystems in order to say, no, you're wrong and no, you're bad. Um, what role do the information silos that are created by people who are trying to get clicks and make money and then reaffirmed by social media, by the algorithms that feed us the things that we want and then all of our confirmation biases. Can you layer some of the, the, the larger media issues in with what you're talking about? I think that the model here that everybody will understand is what the media used to do with science denial topics like anti-vax or climate change. You don't have to go back that many years to remember on you know, major media, TV, they would have split-screen debates where they would have an expert from the National Academy of Science on one side and some guy with a website on the other side. And they would give them equal time to talk, make their points. And at the end, the host would say, it's a complicated issue. You know, you, you decide kind of at the, the audience, literally, you, you decide um, that is terrible journalism because and I mean, I understand that um, journalists are afraid of being accused of being biased. Uh, they're, they're afraid of being accused of political bias. And the easiest way to get around that is just to let both sides talk and give them equal time. But that leads to something called information bias. Um, there was a terrific article in the Columbia Journalism Review by uh, Boykoff and Boykoff a few years ago 
on information bias. And that's when you leave your audience less well-informed than they were when they started watching your program. And I'm afraid that that's what happened with uh, anti-vax and with climate change. Now, a number of the media outlets uh, stopped doing that because things got real. People started, there started to be measles outbreaks. You know, they started to understand we're causing real damage. The trouble is that that instinct is still there. And so they will still, you know, you'll see it on political topics. Now, you, you can have differences of opinion where it's perfectly legitimate to have a split screen debate and, and hear both sides. But when they're talking about matters of fact, you know, maybe not scientific matters of fact, but other matters of fact, it's not appropriate to do that way. Um, I, I said one time, and, I, and I've been saying it ever since, that the halfway point between the truth and a lie is still a lie. And you, you can't just give both sides equal time and think, well, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. That's that's not where it is. And, and the, the responsibility of media is to make sure, first and foremost, that they're telling the truth. They make mistakes, correct it, move on. But they, they can't give they can't give the uh, free speech. You know, they can't give the liars a microphone. They have to stop giving a platform to the people with an agenda who are creating disinformation and lies, trying to amplify it out to their followers. I'm going to say a few things. that will probably aggravate a few folks out there. Um, but first, I, you know, again, as as usual, I'm signing on to everything we just said. Um, but a part of the problem is not with the media, it's with us. You know, why do we have these? And I've done it, right? I'm, I do TV. I've been one of the Brady Bunch, you know, 10 talking heads and all that. You know, why do we have these big gladiatorial arguments on television? I get asked this and I say, because that's what you want. Because, you know, I was on a panel one time with Dan Baltz from the Washington Post. And I really, it was such a great moment because somebody stood up and kind of pointed the finger, said, why don't you guys, the Washington Post, you know, write more explainers and help us understand things. And he said, we do, you don't read them. Uh, because of course, in the modern era, I don't, I don't know anybody's ever been in, I'm obviously outside the panel here. Um, if you've ever been in a modern newsroom, they know exactly what you're reading all the time. They have like these big electronic command centers. The guys in the Washington Post, the New York Times, they know what page most people are on. They know how long they dwell on an article. They know all this stuff. And he, without even blinking, Dan said, we do, we, we write them. You, you won't read them. Um, and so the media, and this is, this is kind of a weird road to go down for an old, old school, former, you know, market oriented conservative like me, but capitalism has created news as a, as a product. Um, and so we get what we want. We we have information poisoning for the same reason that we are all, you know, overweight and diabetic because we eat junk food because we like it. And that's what we want. And that's what the market provides to us. Um, and so the, the, the one side, other side thing um, is partly to service our narcissism to come back to that. It's like, well, they didn't represent somebody who has my view on it. Are they saying that my view isn't good enough? And instead of being courageous and saying, yes, that's right. Your view is stupid. Your view is crazy. You know, um, no, you know, the, the world is not flat. Um, and, and uh, you know, they said, well, all right, we'll have it as a debate because everybody loves a debate. And, it, and it's also our false sense of egalitarianism. 
that we don't like to have anyone on who speaks authoritatively without being challenged, right? So somebody says, the world is, you know, round. Um, well, who is this person to simply declare like the Pope, you know, uh, that the world is round? So we have to have one person who says, well, I am speaking for the common person. And maybe the world isn't round. And that makes us feel good. We sit back in our chairs and we say, see, somebody stuck it to that smarty pants. And, and we lost our nerve somewhere. There's a loss of kind of virtue in all this. I gave a talk a while back to a, a committee at the National Academy of Sciences. And they said, what can we do about, you know, this post-truth problem? And I said, well, get out there and plant the flag. Stop arguing with people about the, the basic nature of reality. Say, look, I'm a Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist. I, I promise you the world is flat, is not flat. And I'm not going to argue about this. And they kind of all shook their heads and said, well, you know, nobody wants to be condescended to. And I'm like, OK, but, you know, if you're not going to defend these basic truths, then it's patronizing. It's it's I, I don't know what to do about that. So somewhere there's a sweet spot in between, you know, well, we all have opinions and. Um, being overly authoritative. But I think that's what the media is doing. I think the media is saying, well, we don't want to offend anybody. So we have to have a variety of views because there's going to be one crackpot who's going to, you know, be alien. And in, and in, in a market where eyeballs are money, every set of eyeballs you fight for. When I talk to people about this issue, one of the things they often say to me is, well, we have the internet today. There's all this information available to us so we can all just do our own research. And my response is, yes, it's awesome that we have all of this information available to us. That's great. But there's still a need for expertise. You still have to know what is good information and what's bad information, how to interpret information. So you need experts, you need gatekeepers, you need guardrails. And Lee, you have a great example when talking about this flood of information that we have available to us and the need to be able to identify what is good information and what's bad information. It, it involves Indiana Jones. Yeah, um, the, I, I, it took me a couple of tries to get the, the correct title for the movie. It's uh, Indiana Jones and the, and the Holy Grail. And so people have said, well, look, the Internet is wonderful because you can find truth. I mean, you don't need a world book encyclopedia anymore. It's it's all there. You can, you know, you can go out and find it. And it and it's true. If you're looking for truth, you know, if you're looking for well-vetted, you know, double-sourced uh, things, you you can you can find it. Um the problem is that it's cluttered with a lot of other stuff that you've got to be able to find your way through. And there's this wonderful scene in uh, the movie, Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail, where Indiana Jones, he's looking for the Holy Grail. That's, you know, the whole movie. And he's finally found it. And it's right in front of him with 99 fakes. He doesn't know which one it is. And that's what the Internet is like. We've got true information at our fingertips, but we cannot discern the difference. It's uh, another metaphor I talked about one time was when I was a little boy, you know, standing in line talking to my mom as we were checking out, you know, I'd see the National Enquirer and it would have this scandalous headline. And I'd say, wow, mom, look at that, aliens have landed. And she'd say, no, no, you know, that's the National Enquirer. And, you know, how, how do they get away with that? Well, you know, we probably talked about that a couple of times. But 
you know, imagine you bought a copy of the National Enquirer and you bought a copy of the New York Times and you brought them home and you cut out all the articles and you made a collage and then you electronically altered the fonts so that it all looked the same and you presented all the articles side by side. You couldn't tell the difference. And that's what you see now on Facebook and Twitter. That's how people get their news. So they don't just get it from the uh, traditional media sources. They get it as chopped up by social media that presents traditional news and a lot of fake news along the way, which is very tough. So, you know, I mean, Tom, your, your insight about expertise, I think is really, you know, exactly spot on. And I think there's another problem too, which is not only that people don't trust experts, they don't have the wherewithal sometimes to know who the experts are. It's, it's like you were saying before about, about science. It's not just that they challenge scientific facts. It's they challenge the process by which scientific facts are discovered. They, 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 they don't, um, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Too stupid to know they're stupid. They don't, they don't know. They have no context, no frame of reference to figure this out. Tom, before I let you weigh in real quick, I just want to give this full Indiana Jones quote from Lee. Lee gave me this quote in an interview, and I included it in an article that I published in the Journal of Working Class Studies called Obligations to the Future with my co-authors Eric Nelson, Cynthia Cox, and Eduardo Benia Silva. And we also ended up later uh, revising that piece into a much shorter piece, and we, we published that in the Bulwark. But in this piece, Lee says, The cognitive bias has always been there. The Internet was the accelerant, which democratized all of the disinformation and misinformation and diminished the experts. Democratization has led to the abandonment of standards for testing beliefs. It leads people to think they are just as good at reasoning about something as anybody else, but they're not. At the doctor's office, I don't ask for the data and reason through it myself and decide on the course of treatment. It takes expertise and experience to make that judgment. Just like I don't fly my own plane. There's a scene in Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade where he is in this room with all of these goblets and chalices and doesn't know which one is the Holy Grail. That's where we are right now. We have the truth right in front of us, but we don't know which one it is. There's a slogan that science deniers use, do your own research. If science is about facts, why can't I just go out and find my facts? But you need guidance to know what is factual. You need experts. Many Americans have an enormous misunderstanding about science generally. They misunderstand the term theory, for instance, thinking that any theory is as good as any other, rather than realizing that some theories are more credible than others because they are warranted by the evidence. End quote. Tom, I'll let you weigh in now. The, the other um, problem is that, again, I'm going to go back to this narcissism and egalitarianism theme. Um, when students say to me, but the Internet, it's the Internet is information. It's free. It's like it's a huge lie. It's the it's the library of Alexandria online. And I said, no, the Internet is a giant dumpster. And I, I think sometimes students think I'm a Luddite, but I was an I'm a techno optimist. I mean, I was the Internet came of age. I'm 60 and the Internet came of age when I did. I mean, I had a, I had my first email account in 1983 before people use that term, because I worked on a social science lab, like I was totally a nerd about everything related to computers. And I still am. I mean, I'm, I'm 60 years old and I'm still a computer gamer. Um, probably should admit that out loud, but I, but I am. And, um, but, but, and so when I say, you know, 
they said, well, you hate the internet. I'm like, no, I hate anything that doesn't have gatekeepers, which is a word that triggers people. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I had a blog. I took it down because as a student said to me, can I quote your blog? And I said, no, the editor's an idiot. And he said, and he kind of paused for him. And I said, right, me, because you should never be your own editor. There is no control. But, and, and Lee, the thing you're getting to about the provenance of information, you don't even know like who the expert, you know, so I said, if it, if it doesn't have editors, if it doesn't have a corrections page, if it's not an established press. Um, and I think the other problem with the Internet as a source of information, it's not just I, I love Lee's um, metaphor here of, you know, mix the fonts or, or standardize them, but also that we have come to believe that information is always interesting. And that if it's just information and it's boring, it's not true. And one of the gripes, when I said a minute ago, I was going to make people mad. One of the gripes I have about media, and this is when I said I'm going to make people mad, I'm going to draw a comparison here between people like Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow, who used to be pals, because they present information in the same way. I am letting you into something very cool. I am here to tell you secret stuff that other, I'm going to make you one of the initiates, one of the elect who understands and the internet plays to that all the time because to simply hand somebody a gray, you know, newspaper with black and white type on it and say, this, this isn't, this isn't news. This isn't interesting. And we've come to expect that information is this constant jolt of dopamine because we expect that everything in the 21st century has to be a constant jolt of dopamine. And so the internet is the, the worst of all worlds in that way. And so I, I'm a huge favor of boring news and um, gatekeepers. And people, younger people especially hate that because as one, as someone said to me one time when I said this, so what you're saying is you're trying to defend the patriarchy. And I'm like, you know, the gatekeepers don't have to be old men, but they have to be somebody. And I, I, I don't know how we get back to that. You know, it's it's interesting that the uh, uh, I'm thinking of conspiracy theories here, Tom, because there's some empirical research which shows that people are more prone to believe a conspiracy theory if they think that it's unpopular. It's sexier when you're yeah. one of the initiates, you know, you've taken the red pill and you're one of the few people who really know the truth. It, it, it occurred to me as I was watching because I watch all of the cable networks. And it occurred to me that all of the cable networks had a similar, at least with the personality-driven shows, they had a similar MO. I am speaking directly to you, and you and I are going to learn cool stuff that no one else really understands. And I'm going to connect the dots. And, show, you know, people, the idea that when the news... Um, I'm old enough to remember when the news was, you know, 28 minutes. I'm not old enough to remember the, the nightly news. Younger people watching us will not believe this. The nightly news used to be 15 minutes long. That was it. And the other rest of the time you had to read a newspaper. And the idea that you would just get a, a droning kind of recitation of we signed an arms control treaty today. Inflation is 2%. Uh, the unemployment rate spiked. That is inconceivable to the modern viewer. And so, yeah, and I, I think it just it, it blends into this because it's like we must feel like we are being initiated into special knowledge. Uh, somebody asked for an explanation of red pill from the Matrix. 
yeah. where if you take the red pill or the, if you, we're really all just living in a big computer simulation. But if you take this one pill, the red pill, you, you see it. Whereas if you take the blue pill, you get to live in, um, you know, the, the fantasy. And so to red pill, somebody is like to give them the pill that clears their eyes and they see reality for what it is. And they suddenly realize that we're all living in the guts of this huge machine. And, and, um, it's a it's a completely paranoid, inane concept that came out of a science fiction movie that people now use unironically and without realizing how crazy it sounds. I often tell my students there's as much good information out there today as there's ever been. And I often use the example of imagine if you're in a room with five experts talking about any scientific topic. Let's say they're talking about a black hole, right? And they're all experts. They know exactly what they're talking about. They have a high level of expertise and you feel really confident. I'm in a room and 100 percent of the people in here know what they're talking about. And then if 10 people all of a sudden run into the room who have no expertise whatsoever, they know nothing about black holes. Now you look around and you say, well, gosh, there's 15 people in this room and the vast majority of them have no idea what they're talking about. That's our modern media ecosystem because there's still just as much good information as there's ever been. The problem is identifying it. So if you can't identify who those experts are in that room and those there's 15 people in that room, if you can't identify the five people who know what the heck they're talking about, about black holes, then unfortunately that unleashes our natural human tendencies to block out information, which threatens our core beliefs, threatens our core identities, and then to go seek out information, which makes us feel good to go seek out information from those 10 people in that room who have no idea what they're talking about. The average person says a good source is one that agrees with me and the things I already think. And a bad source is one that presents me with uncomfortable cognitive dissonance. And, and, for, and this kind of gets over into Lee's territory. A bad source is one that challenges my tribal political affiliations with information that makes me uncomfortable about those affiliations. The, the other aspect to this that, that is really um, quite shocking is to realize that a lot of, there's a difference between misinformation and disinformation. A lot of the mistakes that, that you know, people come up with are fed to them by somebody who intentionally created them and then amplified that counter-narrative in any way that they could. And so, you know, I, I look at, uh, I study, you know, professionally, my, my next book is, is about how to talk to a science denier. I study science deniers. In many cases, they're victims. They're the audience. They're the pawns for people who are profiting, either economically or politically or ideologically, who have created this enormous um, disinformation campaign that then they're they're feeding out about vaccines, about COVID, about climate denial, you know, what have you, because it serves their interests. And so, you know, that's a it's it's not it's not just that people are um you know stupid for believing you know what what they read. It's that somebody is creating this understanding exactly how the human mind works and what people will go for and what they won't. And what it really comes down to is is information warfare, uh, you know, propaganda. A shocking amount of um, science denial 
uh, information is generated by the Russian and Chinese government. If you trace it back on Facebook and Twitter, there's now some uh, our U.S. intelligence services have been you know, investigating this. Um, a lot of the disinformation you know, circulating on the Internet about COVID, about vaccines, um, you know, uh, even about GMOs, is courtesy of uh, you know, foreign intelligence services who understand that it's in their interest to exploit the existing divisions within American society, some of which are about scientific facts. To both of you, could you could you speak to the role of higher education and academia um, in the hopes that maybe we could, I don't know, work together, maybe organize something so we are not collectively collaborating with the enemy? I mean, I, I teach philosophy, and so I'll always make a plug for more critical thinking and, and logic courses. But I've got to say um, that I don't think that's going to solve it, and I think it's too late by the time people get to college. Um, I tell the story in uh, in Post Truth of um, Scott Bedley, who was a fifth grade teacher out in California, won uh, Teacher of the Year, and he had a game called the Fake News Game, where he would teach his students how to identify. He had a rubric, and he would teach them how to identify uh, what was a good sourced, uh, copyrighted byline story. And they loved the game so much that they wouldn't go to out to recess. You know, they wanted to no, give us another one, Mister Bedley. We want to play the Fake News Game. Uh, Finland has a wonderful. Uh, a program on uh, you know teaching kids how to resist propaganda, disinformation, and, and fake news. We, we really need to be doing more of that, and not just in higher education, but um, younger than that. Uh, I mean, my kids are grown now, but boy, do I remember how skeptical they were of everything. I mean, if you told them, "Well, here's how to tell the difference between a fake story and a real story," they would they would have eaten that up. And uh, so I'm I'm just I'm an advocate of you know, doing more education, yes. But I, I've also worried recently about that it's, we can't just educate our way out of this. We have to do something to keep the disinformation from uh, getting as much reach as it does. Uh, the, the So many platforms, so many, you know, unregulated, um, unedited, uh, things out there is just like I said that you know the Holy Grail surrounded by ninety nine fakes and how can any reasonable person tell the difference? This is a virtue problem rather than a knowledge problem. This is a particular kind of decadence, if I can use that word, um, that makes people susceptible to this. That comes with affluence, high levels of technology, um, you know, f- endless amounts of entertainment and calories. Um, but I do think, to, so that we are not completely hopeless on this, I do think that an educated, that the college educated public is kind, they can be the kind of antibodies for a lot of the fake stuff that comes across. And I think where where the colleges can model, and I don't think this is going to happen anytime soon, but I think where colleges can actually, and I talk about this in the book, where colleges can do a better job is not in education per se, but in returning to a much more harder edged form of education that gets away from what I call the therapeutic model of education, because I'm not, and I've had a, you know, before anybody thinks this is sour grapes and, you know, students hated me or I've had, I've been teaching for 35 years. I've had a great career. 
but um, we do spend too much time asking students, are you happy? Do you like this? Are you enjoying it? Does this feel okay? Do you feel included and respected? And, you know, and instead of saying college is uncomfortable, it should be uncomfortable. It's where you learn to challenge things, where you go and take Lee's class and you suddenly have to think about life in a different way. And nobody's asking you if you like it, you know, that Plato's Republic is not an easy read. Um, it should make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. And so I think there, you know, if we got away from the kind of Yelp restaurant review model, and I was a former department chairman, I had to read all these, you know, evaluations. Um, I think if we got away from some of that and toward a more, I don't want to say canonical, but a much a more rigorous version of critical thinking and Socratic dialogue that created people who then go out and are fearless, intellectually fearless. We, we've bred that out of ourselves somehow. Um, I think, in, and whether it's the right or the left, Chris, the right, I think, is dissolved and has no intellectual basis behind it at all. But even the stuff on the left, it, the books that were written 15 or 20 or 25 years ago about politics and public policy were much more fertile. They were much more interesting. Um, you know, I can't really remember the, the last few books I've read kind of in, as general politics that had a kind of fearlessness to them. And I think that's partly because we're beating that, our, that out of ourselves. So I, I think that's where I would I, I think in higher education, um, you know, a, a more con, a more confrontational, intellectually aggressive give and take with students about important stuff like this. Um, would create better citizens who are more capable of confidently engaging with a lot of these adversarial, you know, sources of information that are just that, as you both pointed out, are just actually attacks on knowledge. But, but they actually have to engage, though. Is is the thing? I mean, what do we do about the preaching to the choir problem? You know, I I I'm a big advocate of of talking to people that you disagree with. And I think that in fact, what the, the research shows is that people who give up their anti-vax views or their anti-climate change views, you know, pe people who are science deniers and, and convert, they it all happens the same way. It happens because they are engaged in talking to someone that they trust, who has the patience and the respect and listens to what they have to say. And so one thing that I've worried about is, uh, Lawrence, I think you brought up earlier, kind of the silo phenomena, where, you know, if, if suppose we had an ideal education system, you know, in elementary school, in college, whatever it was, but we were only talking to people who already agreed with us, maybe nothing would change. You know, I, I'm, I like the model of um, engaging people that, you know, on a, not being afraid, what you were talking about, Tom, you know, aggressively questioning the source, the information in the classroom, but then going out and doing it in the in the real world as well, you know, in a, in a, in a good hearted way, in a good faith way, not because, you know, you secretly want to tell the other person they're an idiot, but you're you know, afraid to say it. But, to, you know, to, to really engage with people who are mistaken and that you might be able to help. That's that's what I'm. I I I think there's at least for science denial, which is what I'm working on now. That's the the model that I think has some possibility to work. 
And it's very tough. You know, it's kind of bespoke, you know, one-on-one to do this each time. I'm, you know, this will be the first disagreement we've had all night. I'm not sure that works anymore. I used to believe exactly that. And I said, you know, back in the day when I, you know, when I was a journeyman teacher, when all, you know, it was, if someone said, I think the world is flat, you'd say, let's unpack that. Let's work. Let's work on this. Let me, let me get. And I, I think there are two things that have kind of scared me about that approach. One is there has been some research that says that the engagement effect actually doesn't last very long, that it tends to be something that you can get to because of that hard wiring for sociability that, you know, the, 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 cause they've, there have been some studies where the fall and I, I don't have them at the top of my head. I'm sorry, but that, the, you watch the research, the researchers watch and people say, hey, we've come to kind of, we've engaged more, we understand each other. And then within hours, days, weeks of leaving that environment, it falls apart. It's not lasting. I don't, I can't say it's a fully formed approach yet, but I have become a fan of um, stigma. I hate to say, you know, it seems very old fashioned, but I would like to make, um, you know, flat earthism like smoking. That at some point, you just simply are not taken seriously in the same way. And before we all kind of back up and say, now, wait, 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 you know, um, think about how it was accepted in the United States for years that racial differences among people are moral and intellectual. Like, you know, black people are just stupid. Asian people are just reserved. Um, You know, Hispanics are just temperamental and violent. Um, and, and over time, instead of saying, now, look, you know, we've done the research and this is, we basically said, look, that's just a, it's just wrong. Um, and we're not going to, it's, it's wrong. And you're holding on to a belief that we've, you know, is just scientifically unsustainable. And we're not going to have these arguments with you because it's just you wanting to have this argument. And over time, I think we've actually overcome some of those things in both in public and in public policy. So science denial, though, is the the problem. And here I have some relevant experience because I went to a flat earth convention in November 2018. There were 650 flat earthers there and me and, you know, some media. And and I'm here to tell you they were they were not attention seeking. They really believed it. Or I'm the biggest sucker that ever existed because I spent 48 hours with them talking about, you know, everything under the under the sun. And, you know, we really. They, they genuinely really believe it and they're growing. My worry was that if we don't engage with them, you know, if we don't, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to build an army of scientists and other people to go out and, and talk to these folks and talk them down because it seems to me that this problem is getting worse and worse. And I think it was the, the feeder for you know, our post-truth era. And yeah, I, I think I think you've touched on something in, important here. I, I think it, to a certain extent, it's about identity. It's about group identity. You know, they're finding other people that agree with them, who tell them that they're smart, that they know that they're you know the elite. They the flat earthers happen to love the matrix. They like the idea of the red pill because that's how they see themselves. And my concern, especially after going to the flat Earth convention and writing about it is that if we don't take them seriously and we just stigmatize them and just walk away and don't talk to them, they're going to grow to the point where they choke out uh, good information. Well, Lee, how, do you, how do you square this with what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, part of the social guardrails before the, before the internet 
was if you were that one guy in town who said, you know, um, like um, I, I had a neighbor, I had an elderly neighbor who really believed all the, the lurid inquirer stuff. Like every Sunday, my job for my neighbor was I, she was disabled, right? So every Sunday, little Tommy Nichols took his quarter in payment. And I went down to the drugstore and I got her all her tabloids for the week. And she believed that, you know, there were graveyards full of Catholic babies that the priests had hidden, you know, and that uh, the moon landing was fake and all that stuff. And what kept all that in check was that these people were embedded in an, an entire society of people who shook their heads and said, you know, that's not true. And if you, you know, we're not, this is not going to be a thing. And what made it a thing was the ability to reach out each, each person who believes this. Now, you know, they create a, a union. I, and I'll give you an example of one of the ways I found this really unsettling. There is a group that formed over the internet that see themselves now as an interest group. They're a club nationally of people who have come to realize that they are the victims of constant government surveillance. Now, we would call those people emotionally disordered, paranoid, untreated schizophrenia, whatever it is. They were profiled in the New York Times as a social organization with pictures and a big you know, journalist doing a big thing where I'm reading it saying they, these are people who in before the Internet and before journalists could exploit this as a story, these are people who would have been the one person in town. There would have been an intervention to say, no, the government does not have cameras in the street lamps, you know, and in your TV and in your refrigerator watching you. And now it's mainstream. So my concern is that when we take all of these, then I'm, and I'm leaving aside the mental illness problem, but when we take people who say, you know, um, flat earthers, or I'm trying to think of a less, um, you know, even QAnon, you know, that, 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 saying, well, we have to engage and we can't shun. I think that we we deprive our fellow citizens of moral and intellectual cues that leaves them more aimless. I, I, I mean, sometimes even in a classroom where I hate to ever be directive because I, you know, I, it's, I teach politics. We get a lot of give and take. But there are moments when you have to bring everything to a kind of record scratch halt and say, I have to stop right here. That is wrong. That is simply not a factually true thing. We can talk about other stuff, but that's not. And I, I, I think we have to start doing that with our fellow citizens because I don't. I, I, I take your point that left on. It's like saying, well, there are weeds growing in my garden, and if I just give them a dirty look, they'll stop growing. Um, on the other hand, you don't tend to the weedy part of the garden and, and keep feeding it. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going off the edge of a metaphor here, so I'll stop. But. I, I'm I'm just concerned about the reaching aside. I think the best thing a Nobel Prize winning scientist could do is come out and say, this is the last, the world is not flat. It's the last thing I can say about it. I can't have this discussion. You know, I, I can't because everything you, you know, you know, this having dealt with these folks and I've done it with political conspiracy theories, every argument becomes proof that the conspiracy is true. That's right. And that the more you argue, the more you become identified as an agent of the conspiracy and that the effort you put into it validates their belief that they are important enough because they have discovered the truth. But if you spend two hours arguing with a conspiracy theorist, 
they say, you know what? Lee McIntyre spent two hours arguing with me. I am onto something. Whereas with some people, with I, I have finally gotten to the point with people where I've said, you're not only wrong, but in deep in your heart somewhere, you know you're wrong. And I can't get you there. That's a spiritual matter. That's a that's a human or moral matter. And I cannot get you to where you need to be. You need more. I, but I'm not going to argue with you that, you know, Donald Trump um, is fighting pedophiles. You deep down, you know, you're wrong. And it seems to have an effect. But I, I admit it's unscientific on my part. And I don't know what works. But I think engaging has been the way we do education and public debate for 40 or 50 years. And it's not working. Lee, let me give you the last word on this. Then we'll, we'll wrap up. Do you want to respond? I, the, the empirical literature shows that if you confront somebody and insult them, it, it doesn't work. Doesn't, I didn't say insult them. It doesn't, doesn't change them. Well, but, but see, the thing is, by confronting them, you are insulting them because their beliefs are based. It's not just their belief. It's who they are. It's their identity. So when you challenge their beliefs, you're challenging them as a person. And I did have that two-hour argument. I took the guy off the stage who had just given the flat earth presentation, took him out to dinner, and we had a two-hour debate, just the two of us. And um, you know, the frightening thing is this kid was extremely intelligent, and he oh, yeah. was a great rhetorician. I mean, everything I could say to him, he had already thought of. So I didn't argue facts, because it wasn't about facts or information. That isn't you know, Jonathan Swift said, you can't reason somebody out of something they didn't reason themselves into. So I wasn't trying to present him with facts because he knew all the same facts that I did. Instead, I challenged his reasoning strategy. You know, I, I said to him, uh, OK, so you, you say that this is about evidence. So what evidence could I present you um, that would prove you wrong? You know, just in theory, what would I have to show you? And he couldn't answer that question. Now, I'm not going to say that he then ripped off his lanyard and left with me and said, you know, what a fool I've been. But I did stop him in his tracks to have to think, you know, of, of what he could possibly say and maybe plant a, a seed of doubt. I have I have to go back. You know, you're right, because those weeds continue to grow. Right. Even if you plant the seed of doubt, if you don't tend to it, you know, there's trouble. So I'm I'm planning to go back. And, you know, this is kind of my thing now to talk to science deniers and try to not just convince them about with the facts, but to build some trust so that they can uh, see that there's room for them on the science team. Um, there is a shocking, uh, shockingly small amount of literature on what works and what doesn't. Um, there was a, a brilliant study that came out in Nature um, two years ago that uh, provided really the first empirical evidence on what you know, works with them. And um, when we're offline, I'll send you the, uh, the, uh, the link. We want to thank you both so much for your time and your expertise. This has been fascinating. And so the last question I have is just to ask you both to predict the future of your own work, because both of you have books coming out this summer. And so would you like to just give us a little preview and, uh, you know, get the audience geared up to pre-order those books on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Uh, well, I'll, give, I'll give Lee the last word and I'll, I'll just say um, the book is called Our Own Worst Enemy, um, which, you know, gives away the game right there, uh, where I argue that this collapse in social, in public virtue 
and the kind of the um, uh, the kind of chaos in our public life that we are all blaming each other for. Then it's you know it's Trump, it's Antifa, it's the left, it's the universities, it's Cap, whatever. Um, it, it's us, and the three primarily the three things I identify are an extended period of peace. I know you know people say oh it hasn't been a peaceful thirty years compared to most periods in history. You know, as Barack Obama once said, if you had to pick a time to be born, you'd pick now. Um, it's been peaceful. It has been remarkably affluent. Yes, there is income inequality, but it is inequality at high levels of affluence and um, living standards. We have never lived, you know, better or longer around the world than we do now. And high levels of technology that we've come to take for granted that have kind of lowered our resilience and our ability to deal with any kind of difficulty. I mean, you know, even for somebody my age, we live in, a car, in an era where cars just work. Um, you know, like when I was a kid, you used to be able to say, oh, my car broke down. Nobody believes that anymore. It's like the cars don't break down, you know. Um, so uh, my answer is that, and I don't really have a good answer for my fear about the future to answer that question. And I hate to leave on such a bummer is that um, I, I present two alternatives. One is a kind of um, 1984, you know, tiny elite and a ocean of kind of decadent uh, prolet- proles, as, you know, in the George Orwell sense of people that just care about football and gambling and, and beer. And the other, which is actually the fear, the future I fear the most, which is the adv- the arrival of a technocracy where we have basically a kind of middle to lower middle class spread around the world. And they turn to other people and say, look, just just make things work. Just get it for us. Um, you know, just just make sure there's enough food and the Wi-Fi is on and there's enough TV. And, you know, we'll we'll kind of give off, give away our liberal democratic duties as citizens, you know, for comfort. And that that I think is already happening. So it's not the happiest ending to a book. And I thought maybe there'd be a little better. I'd have something more positive to say. But after two years of writing it. I just came to the conclusion that I think we're headed for a kind of soft authoritarianism that we are going to inflict on ourselves rather than have imposed on us. It's called Our Own Worst Enemy. It'll be out in July. That sounds excellent. Lee, do you want to give us a little preview of yours? Sure. Um, I want to say, Tom, uh, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Death of Expertise was one of the five books that I had on my desk the whole time I was writing Post-Truth. Thank you. It's honor to to be on the panel with you. Um, My new book is called How to Talk to a Science Denier. And it's, you know, I've been a scholar of science denial for two decades, and I finally got out there and and went out and started to talk to science deniers. And I spoke with, went to the Flat Earth Convention, uh, I went to the Maldives to see what climate change looked like, you know, up up close, they're not climate deniers in the Maldives, but I, I wanted to do my own research and talk to, you know, see what it looked like. And then I came back and I talked to uh, coal miners uh, about climate change and talked to some other folks about uh, GMOs and anti-vax, uh, COVID. I wrote it uh, in, you know, all up the story of all these conversations and my thoughts about these conversations uh, in the uh, in the new book, which is uh, coming out at the uh, at the end of August with MIT Press, and. Um, my prediction for the future. Um, I read a story the other day, can't remember where I read it, it's on my desk in the other room, that the stop the steal people are now morphing to start talking about 
um, anti-vax. This is my nightmare. Uh, I've been studying science denial all these years, and then all of a sudden, it metastasized from just science denial to reality denial. And that, you know, that's when we start to, you know, to see the the threat of authoritarianism, Tom, as you were talking about, right, the, the real threat to democracy, when facts and truth and reality don't matter anymore. And I'm afraid that what's happening now is that not just that science denial was this spark that led to the, you know, the political subordination of reality, all reality, but that there's this kind of porous line now that exists between facts, scientific facts, you know, which should be the, you know, best uh, verified facts that, that we can find, and, you know, other sorts of facts. Um, you're now hearing, you know, you saw this start in the, in the Trump era, but it's, it's still going on. You know, people will argue about whether the murder rate is going up or down. Well, that's pretty well tracked by the FBI, you know, but if you don't, agree about whether the murder rate is going up or down, how's that going to affect public policy about whether we should build more prisons, et cetera, et cetera. And you're seeing this now, unfortunately, infiltrate Congress. They simply are unable to legislate, to make any policy decisions based on facts. And it's not just for scientific facts, it's any sort of facts. And so I'm sort of afraid of exactly what Tom's afraid of. That is that we're going to back ourselves into this corner where um, authoritarianism uh, is the end result because we're not doing enough, not only to protect facts, but the process by which we verify factual information, which is, you know, science and all the other good habits that, you know, we think of. And some of it is the, you know, the societal norms that, you know, Tom, you talked about some of this, how we stigmatize people, you know, who, who you know, are, are believing outrageous things just because they're outrageous. So I'm, I'm also afraid for our future. And I don't think we have that much time to push back. QAnon scared the hell out of me because QAnon, it seems to me now is not, is to the point where it's not just about beliefs anymore. It's about action. And there's this, you know, moment when, extremist beliefs become, you know, extremist actions. And I'm afraid that's where I believe we might be headed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Utterly Moderate. We are deeply appreciative of all the support we are getting from listeners, not only in the U.S., but in countries around the world. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform. Or you can listen to us on utterlymoderate.com, where you will find every episode as well as each episode's companion resources. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Please listen carefully. Carefully, 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 carefully.